Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, if you would please turn to First Chronicles chapter 23. We are in First Chronicles 23. If you don't have a Bible, if you need a Bible, uh, we have some that are available right outside there. Somebody stand in there. They'll be glad to hand them to you. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, your Bibles, then feel free to turn to your table of contents in the beginning. Uh, I don't know what page number it is. Uh, all of our Bibles are quite a little different. It's page 421 in my Bible. Uh, I think that'll help you though, in any way. Um, so feel free to turn to the table of contents. We are in the 23rd chapter of 1 Chronicles. Now, we've been looking at this book of uh, 1 Chronicles, and in doing so, last week we came to a place where David is about to, to pass on. He's going to give the kingdom, if you will, to his son Solomon. Now, David has many sons that were probably more qualified than Solomon, but the Lord had kind of had his hand on Solomon. And as it says in our first verse of our passage today, verse 1, it says, When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son the king of Israel. So he's passing the kingdom on to this young man. Uh, David became king when he was 30 years of age, and he ruled for 40 years. So David is now either is or he's just about to be 70 years of age when his days are coming to an end, he knows it, and so he wants to pass the kingdom off. In 2 Samuel 5, we learn that. So we're not just making stuff up here, we're looking at the word. And in 2 Samuel 5, it says when David was 30 years old, he began to reign, he reigned 40 years. So we can do the math, we're smart people, and we see that David is about 70. And here he is, the king of Israel, coming to the last day of his, days of his life. And as I think about David, I think about the whirlwind that his life was, where David came from and where he ended up. Remember, David was a, the youngest son in a household of seven boys, born into this obscure little village of Bethlehem. And you say, Bethlehem's not obscure. I know Bethlehem. You wouldn't. If it wasn't for Jesus being born there, you would have no idea where Bethlehem was in Israel. Even today, it's an obscure little village other than the fact that Jesus was born there. Uh, and back then, nobody knew anything about Bethlehem, and that's where David came from. And he was the youngest brother, and it seems that he was significantly younger than his older brothers. You know, sort of one other situation, we got the 20-year-old kids, and then all of a sudden, surprise, you know, and you got like that little guy that comes along there. Well, it seems that that's what David was, one of those late-life surprises. Uh, and as that late-life su late surprise, a lot of times, you know, the adults congregate, and and it's little David, you know, and he's not that important in our culture. But David here, born into obscurity, David one day asked to deliver a lunch to his brothers, seven miles away that are in the battle, and goes there as an errand boy, a lunch deliverer, and comes home from that as the hero of Israel, because he killed, as you remember, that giant. And everybody knew David's name. They were singing songs to David, Saul killed his thousands, but David, the little kid, his tens of thousands, he becomes a hero. Shortly thereafter, a year or so after that, he's anointed to be the future king. The, the most significant person in the entire nation, probably, Samuel, comes, finds him, and anoints him to be the king. Uh, interesting, in that case, when Samuel does come, he's looking at each of the brothers. They don't even invite David there. Obviously, it's not going to be David. He's the little kid. And he's out in the fields doing his thing. David gather, or Samuel gathers all these guys together, and he looks at each one of David's brothers, He's like, no, I just don't have that feeling. It's not that one, not that one, not that one. And Jesse's, the dad is like, well, that's all I got. He's like, come on, you got to have another kid. God told me it was your family. He's like, yeah, we got a little boy, but he's out in the field. He's like, we'll go get him. I'm here anyway. Might as well, you know, due diligence. And so they go get David. And as soon as David walks in, Saul says, that's the one. And they're like, really? Especially Jesse, his father, probably. And so David is the anointed king, and then David gets a job in the palace. He's not the king yet, but he gets a job in the palace, and the king, Saul, begins to doubt him. You know, and he begins to wonder about his motivations. And David becomes public enemy number one. Saul tries to kill him a number of times, and David runs for his life. And for the next 20 years of his life, this guy, who is 15 to, you know, if you will, 10 up to about uh, 30, this guy is running for his life, hiding in caves, sometimes living amongst the enemies, just trying to survive. This is his life, and now he becomes the king of Israel, all of Israel. He's 37 years of age when he becomes the king of the entire nation and begins to have a palace established and begins to take on the rest of uh, the, the surrounding country and all that sort of stuff. And what a whirlwind of this life that this man lived, coming from nowhere to being the most powerful king that the nation perhaps had ever seen and certainly into the future as well. And now he's about to die. He's coming to the end of his life, and he's ready to hand the kingdom off 
to Solomon. If you look at chapter 29, it'll be up on the screen here, but in chapter 29, verse 1, it said, Now David said to the king, uh, David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. He's young and he's inexperienced. Now, we don't have an actual age of Solomon when he begins ruling, like we do David. It said he was 30 years old. But we don't have an actual age that is written down for Solomon. But if you do the math, kind of, you can get a window. And the window, the estimates that are given for how old Solomon was when he was named king, was anywhere from 12 years of age to about 20 years of age that Solomon is named the king of this particular nation. He is inexperienced. He's young and he's inexperienced. And if you look at David's other sons, each of us, you know, if we were like headhunters or whatever, we could go through the resumes of his other sons, and we would probably pick somebody else other than Solomon. We would look at people like Adonijah and others that are uh, of David's line that are in their 30s, 40s, 50s. They've been military leaders and so on, and we could say, that should be the one, or that should be the one, or that should be the one. But God said, no, it's going to be Solomon. And this is another clear example of the grace of God. You say, how is that? Well, remember, Solomon's mother is a woman by the name of Bathsheba. And you recall that Bathsheba was the one that David had an affair with just a little while earlier, and she became pregnant as a result of that affair. Now, that baby died before, either before coming to term or shortly, or shortly thereafter coming to term. That baby died. And Solomon, as those two got married and, and went on, Solomon is the one that would be born of that union, a union which should have never occurred in the first place. And yet God said, you know what? Through that union, through that simple union that developed initially, I'm going to pour out a measure of grace. It's a clear example of grace. And it's another example, what we learned about two weeks ago, is where God can bring beauty even from the ashes, even from evil, if you will, that God can bring good. So because of Solomon's inexperience, somewhere between 12 and 20, David gathers together the leaders of Israel for the purpose of organizing and charging them. You guys are going to build a temple. Interesting, because of all the legacies that David could have left. You know, I installed this great education system in the nation of Israel. And so that, you know, education will go on long beyond me. That could have been David's legacy. It could have been the roadway system. And we were able to mass uh, market stuff and move it all around. And that's going to be my particular legacy. It's going to be a great, powerful military. No one will mess with Israel. That could have been his legacy. So of all the legacies that David chose to focus his attention on, that he wanted to leave, he wanted to leave the fact that there would be a temple and as he said in chapter 22, 5, that the temple would be exceedingly magnificent. That was the legacy he wished to leave. And so he assembles the leaders that are going to be doing this particular task long after he's gone. Look at verse 2, starting in verse 2. It says, Now David assembled all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. And he goes on and explains how the Levites, 30 years old and upward, their number, and their total was 38,000 men. Of those 38,000 men, 24,000, David said, shall have charge of the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 shall be officers and judges, 4,000 gatekeepers, and 4,000 of them shall offer praises to the Lord with the instruments that I have made for praise. And David organized them in divisions corresponding to the sons of Levi. And those divisions were Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So David assembles the leaders, the priests, and the Levites. Let me break that down. A leader is a clan leader. So they, they could be from any of the tribes. Uh, remember, there was the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of those tribes, they have uh, lots and lots of descendants that come from them. And each one of those descendants, they have clan leaders. They have uh, older men, if you will, who have lots of kids and stuff. And they become a significant person in that particular community. We read about the clan leaders in chapters 3 through chapter 9 of this book. I know a lot of you have somewhat recently begun attending Calvary, and you may not have been here when we went through the genealogies, and some of you were quite delighted that you weren't here for that particular time. But I think the Lord blessed our time together. How many of you remember going through the genealogies? Okay, I know there were more of you here, so we could do it again. <laughs> you weren't paying attention, apparently. So when we went through, so if you go back and you look at chapters three through nine, you can read about the clan leaders. So that's the first group that David assembles. Those people from those chapters. He also assembles the priests and the Levites. Now, the priests and the Levites, those are the men that have been separated to do the work of the Lord. And the, the privilege of doing the work of the Lord, that belonged only 
to the descendants of Levi. That was, Levi was the third son of Jacob. They were the only ones that were allowed to be the priests in that particular culture. Now the priests were those Levites specifically selected to receive the offerings from the people and to give sacrifice unto the Lord. And here's a phrase that you can remember, okay? All priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests, okay? So it's a distinct group of people. And as we said, the priests received the offerings and they presented the sacrifice. Now, as you, as you look further in our particular passage here, when we read about these Levites, because remember, not all Levites are priests. We know what the priests are going to do. But then there's other Levites that don't qualify as priests. What do they get to do? Well, the Levites were essentially the custodians, if you will, of the tabernacle of the temple. These were the men who, according to their claims, were given the privilege of either carrying the tents from the tabernacle, or the furniture, or the poles, or the, uh, the wood products, all that sort of stuff. So these men, it was their job to ensure that the priests could do their job and that the people could essentially come to a free place, a safe place, and a consistent place to come and worship. So they were enabling other people to worship. They were enabling the priests to do their ministry. That's who these Levites are. And in gathering these men together, David numbers them, or he has them numbered. Now, maybe you're like me. You might remember our study from a week or two ago where David numbered the people, and he got in a whole lot of trouble. Remember it said David took a census and there was great judgment. It was called a great and a grievous sin. So how can he number them there? And, he, and this time he numbers them, he doesn't get in trouble. And again, I think it's because it comes back to the intention of David's heart. And when we look back at chapter, I think it was 21 or so, where David is taking the census, we don't know exactly what was going on within his heart, but there was something that was wrong there. And it could be that it was from a place of pride. I want to show everyone how many people that I've gathered up. I sort of want to count my money in my bedroom that I just counted a few minutes ago just to see what I got. It could have been from a, a place of unbelief where, you know, I, I want to go out into battle. I think the Lord's leading us in a battle, but I want to make sure we have enough soldiers to do that because that's the only way we're going to win. We don't trust God anymore in our country. We trust ourselves. It could be from that. We don't know what it is necessarily, but there was some wrong intention and motivation. Here, we don't have that. Here, it's a, it's a situation where David is simply numbering the people so that he can put them into work when he is long gone off the scene. They can assist his son Solomon, who is, we said, young and inexperienced. He can't do this. So David is told the number. The number he's given is 38,000. In Numbers chapter 4, Moses was asked to count the people, the Levites in particular. And in Numbers chapter 4, verses 46 to 48, it tells us that he numbered them to be about 8,500 people. Here, it's now 38,000 men. So it's grown by about 30,000 people. The nation is growing, and so too, then, is the need for the number of people that will serve to accomplish the work of the ministry. I think that's important for us, because here we are, we're a body of believers that are growing. More and more people are coming every week, and God's doing a good work, and he's challenging people, and so on. So more people, more need. There's a need for each of us to rise up into the work of the ministry. And David anticipated that from the change from Moses' days from 500 years or so earlier uh, to this particular point in time. There's a growing need of people to do the ministry. Now, we read, I guess it was around verse 4 or so, that there was 38,000 Levites. And David brings that number down. First you read there, it says that 24,000 of those Levites would be in charge of the work of the house of the Lord. As I said earlier, these are sort of like custodians. These are people that are keeping the place running. Light bulb goes out, they turn and they fix it. Some board starts rotting away, they replace it and they put another one in there. The carpet starts getting dirty in the temple there in the sand of uh, Israel, they vacuum it. That sort of thing. If you believe me, I have some land to say. Uh, but the temple was a place of constant activity. And it took many skilled people to take care of all the practical matters of that activity. And that's what these guys we're called to do. The next group is the officers and the judges. Let's see if you're paying attention. How many officers and judges were there? Fantastic. Two of you got it right. 6,000 officers and judges. We would call them, or we might equate them in our culture to civil servants. So for instance, in, in the U.S. government or in the state government, we have a governor and lieutenant governor and all those elected officials and so on. And they, they sort of come up with all the plans, but they don't implement all of them, do they? Certainly not. They can't but they have civil servants that do. 
And so you've got the thousands of people that work for the state, most of them that live right around in this particular area here or work in this particular area. They're implementing all the things that the higher-ups are telling them to do. They're producing all the paper that they got to push around from one desk to the other. No offense to any of you that do that for a living. for all that paper that is pushed. Anyhow, those are the officers and judges. And at the time of the temple, it was their responsibility to keep the records, to make low-level decisions, and then to implement the decisions that the higher-ups are making. So 6,000 people, not all at once working, and spreading that out. Their job is officers and judges. We also have gatekeepers. And if you look there, it says that there's 4,000 gatekeepers. And gatekeepers are sort of like bouncers, uh, if you will. Uh, they are security guards. And so they gather themselves at the entrance to the temple before the tabernacle, but now the temple. And their job is to make sure that only those that are ready to come and worship enter in. And so that's kind of mean. Why are they keeping people out? Well, they're keeping people out because if you go in and you haven't been uh, cleansed and purified in the appropriate ritualistic way of the Old Testament, then you could be struck down dead. So you want to come in? No, I'm doing you a favor by keeping you out. Go back out there and clean yourself or whatever as you need to spiritually. So they made sure that only those that were ready to worship came in. But they also were sort of like doormen as well. So they're gatekeepers. Hey, stay out. You can't come in. But they're also like doormen, like right this way. And they welcome those that are ready to enter in. So it's a pleasant sight. Remember, David said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper, a gatekeeper, in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. And that's who he's referring to. Um, and 4,000 people are doing that job. And then you also have 4,000 worship leaders. Notice verse 5, it says that they're going to offer, uh, offer their praises on the instruments that have been created and so on. Uh, 4,000 worship leaders who are going to praise God with their voices and with their instruments. Most of those that David himself had provided for them. And I see with these worship leaders that they're going to accomplish two tasks, two responsibilities. Number one is to give God the praise that was due his name. And that's just them. So, for instance, if we take these people that were up here a little while ago, you know, some folks, I understand, you come to Calvary, and you're coming from maybe a non-religious background altogether. You never really went to church as a kid, never did that sort of thing. And you come, and you walk in, and you're like, so, what, so what's going on here? You don't say it, probably. We're just sort of like kind of observing. And then the words pop up on the screen, and the only other place you've seen that is like a karaoke night. <laughs> so you're thinking, all right, you know, I guess. And so, and then there might be a question, like, are they, are they singing, or like, are we singing? Like, do I, am I allowed to join in? And, and so you kind of look around, and, and other people seem to be singing, so you're like, all right. So you sing along with them, and however loud or not so loud as you're comfortable with, or as your neighbors are comfortable with. <laughs> and so you're probably trying to figure all of this sort of thing out. Let me just explain a little bit. These guys here, they're not performers. They're not coming here to do some performance so that you clap. Their job is to help you enter into the presence of the Lord. And so these are people, and it's very important to us. We don't just throw up anybody here that has a good voice or that can play an instrument. It's very important to us that these are people that have already gone before the Lord and sought his presence for themselves. And because they love the Lord, they are worshipers, and they're experienced. They know the way, so to speak. I've gone there many times myself, and follow me. I'll bring you into his presence as well. So they come up and they do their worship where they themselves are giving God the praise, but then they're leading each of us into his presence as well so that we can give God the praise. And David had 4,000 uh, of these Levites whose job it was to lead the people into worship. That's pretty cool. We have two worship teams. I suspect with 4,000 people, they had quite a few more uh, than we did. But they are leading the people into worship. And then if you look at verse 6, the final verse of the section we read, it makes mention of the sons of Levi. So remember, Levi was the third son of Jacob. It was the Levites that the priests would come from and the, the minister of service unto the Lord would come from the Levites. Well, Levi has three kids himself. And those three kids are Gershon, Kohath, and Merarod. That's it, what we have there. In verse 6. This is not the first time we've saw their names. We looked at them in chapter 6 of our book of, uh, of First Chronicles there. Um, and what we noticed back in chapter 6, and then we went back into the book of Numbers, is that of those Levites, their responsibilities were divided up into different responsibilities. So the Gershonites, they did one thing. The Kohathites did one thing, and the Merorites did one thing as well. And as we uh, look back, Numbers chapter 4, it tells us the responsibility of these three sons and their offspring. 
So in Numbers chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 24, it tells us that the purpose of the Gershonites was to set up and break down the tabernacle. You can look at the word, it said, they shall carry the curtains of the tabernacle and the tent of meeting with its covering made of goatskin. Now again, in case you weren't with us, you're probably thinking, I don't understand what a tabernacle is. A tabernacle was a portable temple, if you will. When the tabernacle was introduced to the Jewish people, they were a people that did not have a permanent residence. They were coming out of slavery in Egypt, and they were wandering through the wilderness until they came to the place where it was time to enter into the land. So during that wandering period, you can't build a permanent structure because a week from now, you're not going to be in the same place. So they had a, a temporary temple, if you will. That's called the tabernacle. And it was basically made with canvas, uh, from goatskins and, and so on that were strapped up over these posts uh, and poles and stuff that were there. And then inside you had more permanent structures of uh, furniture, but that furniture could be picked up and moved as well. And so here for the Gershonites, their job would be to carry and set up and to take down the tabernacle. That's their job. You go down a little bit further, we learn about the Kohathites. And the Kohathites, it tells us, they carry the furniture of the tabernacle. So they're the ones that were asked to carry the Ark of the Covenant, which we learned about in one of our previous studies. They're the ones that would carry uh, the table of showbread, or the golden lampstand, or the bronze basin, or the altar that would receive the sacrifices, and so on. That's their responsibility. The Kohathites do that. Now, Numbers chapter 4, verse 4, notice it says, uh, verse 4, FF, FF stands for end following, because there's about 20 verses that go in to explain all the stuff they're going to carry, and I decided to spare you of that. You can go and you can look it up yourself here. But you can summarize it all with the, the words from verse 4. They would carry the most holy things. That means the furniture of the tabernacle. And then the last group is the Mirrorites. And Numbers 4, verses 29 and following, it tells us that their job was to carry the boards and the frames. So all these canvases that would form the canopy over the tabernacle area, well, they got to be placed onto various pillars and boards and so on. And that's what these guys, in particular, are carrying. How's that? Will that change your life? You know, knowing that information? Well, you know, you need to know. You need the Word of God, you need to know it. There you go. Now you got it. Yeah, I'm having a debate with myself here. Just me. <laughs> anyway, verse 7. Starting in verse 7, the writer of the book, we know his name to be Ezra, or at least we believe it is, uh, he goes on to list the names of each of these clans. Now remember, Levi had three sons. Quiz, what are they? Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And that's how I made up his name. I'm not sure how you say it. But those are the three guys there, okay? Look at verse 7. Now, these are the sons of Gershon, okay? Now, here's what happens to me. When I read these things, my, my eyes start to blur a little. And, and I'm just sort of like, uh-huh. And I'm not really paying attention. But when I have to prepare to, to present to you, then i got to pay attention. So I'm focused here. And then as I, as I read this, and I read a verse like 6, and it says, these are the sons, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And then as I carefully look, and I say, all right, verse 7, now these are the sons of Gershon. And then I have a whole bunch of names that I can't pronounce. At least I know, okay, I see where this guy is going. And, and so that helps me understand a little bit. So verses 7 through 11, these are the descendants of Gershon that are listed way back from when Gershon was born to the present day of the guy writing this. Okay? Then you look at verse 12, and verse 12 says, now these are the sons of Kohath. And it goes and it lists for the next five or six verses, eight verses actually, all of their sons. From when Kohath was born, all the way to the present day of Ezra writing this. And then finally, verse 21, it lists the sons of Merari. And it goes and it lists his particular clan. I want to go back and I want to look particularly at Kohath here. Because I said earlier that all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. Well, you could break that down even further, and you can say that all priests are Kohathites, but not all Kohathites are priests. So you keep narrowing it down to a specific people. Look at verse 13 of our text. In verse 13, it speaks particularly, this is the sons of Kohath. And then in verse 13, it says, And of the sons of Amron, Aaron and Moses... Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things that he and his sons forever should make offerings before the Lord and minister to him and pronounce blessings in his name forever. So Aaron was set apart to do these four things. That means that Aaron's line of those Kohathites, Aaron's line were where the priest would come from. 
And a specific description of the responsibility of these priests is given. And there's four things that these priests are to do. And I think it's important that we spend some time and we consider what these priests were being asked to do in the Old Testament because I think there's a parallel and a connection with us in the New Testament. So let's break it down. Verse 13a, it says, Now Aaron was set apart to dedicate the most holy things. So it speaks of holiness. Now, in speaking of holiness, some of us may get the wrong idea of what that means. Because we've, we've all come from different backgrounds, and we've, we've sort of kind of grown up in systems where holiness meant a special place. That quiet place, a little bit dark, you know, stained glass windows, the candlelight or something like that. You can't talk in a holy place, got to be real quiet in there and respectful. You know, you should keep your hands folded, you know, or something like that. Holiness it describes certain people. In some religious movements, Christian type of movements, the leader of the group is called your holiness. Like we might say your honor or something like that to an elected official or a judge or something. They would say your holiness as if that person is holy and you know, sort of the rest of it. So we have sort of this mindset of holiness. That holiness is how you dress or how you speak or how you talk or the things you do or you don't do or something like that. But the idea of holiness can just simply come back to what it, it meant in its original. And that is something that is set apart. So you can, you can think of it this way. If, if you have special dishes at your house, and I've shared this probably before, but if you have special dishes at your house that only the, the good qualified people are allowed to eat on, you know, the china sort of thing, you don't break that out for certain people, but special people, they get to eat on those dishes. That means those dishes are set apart to only be used on special occasions. We could say those are holy dishes. That's what the word means. They're set apart. They're different. And so here these priests are called to dedicate themselves, set apart themselves to the most holy things. That means that they are to have an active concern for that which is holy, or to have an active concern for things that are set apart unto God. And one of the responsibilities of these Old Testament priests was to be able to discern between what was set apart to God and what wasn't, and to help other people understand that process as well. That tells me one thing about this, and this is important for us because I'll make the parallels in a second here, but an Old Testament priest needed to have holiness touching their lives. It wasn't something they necessarily just talked about, but it was something that they were. They were people that were set apart unto God, and that their life was going to be uh, representing God to the people, and in addition, they were gonna represent the people unto the Lord. They were people that were set apart. Number two, if you look at verse 13, the second portion, it says that Aaron and his sons will forever make offerings before the Lord. Now, if you read the King James Version, then your version reads something like they will burn incense before the Lord. Now, the incense offering was a, one of the types of offering. There were lots of offerings in the Old Testament. Some of them involved animals and sacrifices, particular type of sacrifices. There was the meat offering and the burnt offering and so on, the free will offering and the grain offering, all kinds of offerings. One of the type of offerings that there was in the Old Testament was an incense offering. And this is essentially where the worshiper would come, they'd bring uh, like some seasoning, some uh, scents or whatever. They would bring that and they would give that to the priest. And the priest would take those spices and he would put them onto the fire. And then as the flame you know, kind of went up and, and the aroma kind of spread out, well, the smoke would rise up into the heavens. And in the same way as that smoke is rising up, and oftentimes it would be a different color because of the, the, the scents that were placed in there than the normal smoke, as those, that kind of, uh, the smoke was rising up into the heavens, it was emblematic, it was symbolic of, these are like my prayers that are rising up to God. And so when a person would come and they would bring the, these incense to the priest, the priest in many ways was acting as an intercessor on behalf of the people. He was taking, if you will, the prayers and bringing them before the Father in heaven. And so the second responsibility, if you will, of the priest is that of intercessory prayer. And I think this is extremely significant for you and I because we are to be a people that are praying for other people. I'll talk about that more as we go further. Moving on, the third responsibility of the priest is found in the words, minister unto him. So these priests would be extremely busy. They'd be doing all sorts of things. They'd be serving, serving the people. They'd be offering prayers. They'd be keeping things in order. But they were to be reminded at all times that their service, which they did, was to be a service that was unto the Lord. Not so much that it was a servant to everyone around us, 
but that it was a service that was unto the Lord. And I have found that that is extremely important. You see, because one of the things is, as we seek to serve other people, other people let us down, don't they? Yes. Sometimes, you know, you, you expect, you know, we're going to go do this, and then they don't come, and they don't do it. And you're like, yeah. I don't like that guy anymore. <laughs> or sometimes you do something, and you're like, what do you want to do that way? And they question your motives. You're like, you don't know what my motives? You know, and so now you're like, I don't like that guy. Don't bring them anymore, because they question my motives. Or whatever. And, and you can rub one another the wrong way. And that happens all the time. We're, we're flesh, you know, we're, we're sinners, and, and our nature is in there. But what I have found is when I'm in the right place, that even if those sorts of things happen, guy doesn't show up or someone comes late or somebody says something that I interpret a particular way or somebody misjudges my motivations or whatever, that if I'm in the right place with the Lord, I can really shrug that off. Because my service is unto the Lord, not so much unto everyone else. So if you don't like what I'm doing, that's all right, I'm serving the Lord. You know, that's my, my desire through this whole thing. And I can find, I can get myself through that. You hear this a lot of times. People will say things like, uh, they'll speak of burnout in ministry, or even in their Christian walk, you know, as a believer, I just burned out. Yeah. I just don't feel the passion anymore. Other people say that. Maybe you have said that. And I'm convinced that burnout, whether it's in a person's profession, like a ministry that they're in, a pastor or something like that, or it's their personal walk, I'm convinced that it can always come back to a lack of relationship with God. Jesus says in John chapter 15, he speaks of abiding in Christ. And he says, as the branch cannot live apart from the vine, neither can you, and I'm paraphrasing, but neither can you live apart from me. And how often we get so busy in serving, we're doing all sorts of things, that we take our eyes off of the Heavenly Father, and we're no longer emphasizing our relationship with Him, and we're just doing. And then suddenly we find ourselves drying up. And so you have in your backyard, you have trees that are thriving, and, and fruit is growing off of some of those trees, or leaves, or whatever. But once that branch falls off that tree, and it lies, it doesn't matter how close it lies to the tree, but it lies there on the ground. If it's not tapped into the life source, it's going to wither and it's going to die. And the exact same thing is true in our walk with God. If we're not tapped into God, if we're not pursuing relationship with Him, if we're not continually spending that time in personal devotion or personal worship or emphasizing the secret places in our relationship with Him, then our batteries are never recharged and we dry up and we wither. But when we take that time, then we're reminded, you're the one I'm serving. You're the one I decided to go to that church to in the place in the first place. It's because I wanted to know more about you. You're the one when the thing said in the bulletin, we need somebody to help do this. You're the one I said, Lord, I want to do that for you. And so we forget that. We drift away. We have to remind ourselves of that. And these priests, they were called to minister unto God. As they did all these things for other people, they were to remind themselves that it is unto the Lord. And then the fourth responsibility is also found in verse 13, the end of the verse. And it says that they were to pronounce blessings in his name forever. You could say this, that the priest was blessed so that he could bless others. So the work that God was doing in this particular priest was not to just sort of be kept for himself, but it was to be turned right back out and be given to others. I've heard it said this, and I like this, that the priest was to be a fountain, not a cistern. Now, a fountain and a cistern can pretty much accomplish the same thing. What a cistern is, it's, it's basically a hewn-out rock area, stone area, in which the rainwater or whatever could collect into that area, and then you can go and you could drink it. And so oftentimes, people that are in a plumbing and stuff like that, in their backyard, they might have a cistern of some sorts that was made out of a rock or out of uh, kind of like a cement type of thing. They would have a cistern there. And that would be for the immediate needs or whatever. But after a while, that water will get stale and that water will get old. And so we are not called to be cisterns. We're called to be fountains. Now, the reason I bring all of this up is this. Why are we learning so much about what the Old Testament priests did? They're not doing it anymore. Why do I need to know? The reason why I bring it up is because the New Testament declares that every one of us that are a follower of Christ, we've come to the foot of the cross and we said, I need the work of the cross. I realize I'm a sinner. I realize that you died for sin. I accept your offering. That's what it means to become a Christian when you realize those things in your heart. And so here you have in the New Testament, it declares that every one of us that has done that, that we are New Testament priests. And think of yourself that way, but that's what the scripture says. Look at 1 Peter 2. It says, you yourself, like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. It also says in verse 9 that you are a chosen race, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. 
So I, I think many of us, and sometimes I get this, you know, if I'm in certain places where people aren't familiar with uh, Calvary Chapel or whatever, or, or Protestant denomination, if you want to call that, they'll say, are you like a priest or something? You know, and then I hug my wife, and I'm like, sort of. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they'll do that, and I'm like, well, we're allowed, you know, that kind of thing. And so not everybody quite gets it, but I would suspect most of us, if, you know, you looked at a pastor or a minister or something, you'd say, yeah, I get the priest connection thing. But we wouldn't think of ourselves as individuals as priests. But the scripture teaches otherwise, and it says that we are priests. So in the same way that in the Old Testament the priests had certain responsibilities, I see those same responsibilities carrying over for each one of us as a follower of Christ. So for instance, where it talked about the priests were to be concerned about the things of holiness, to be set apart, to set the Lord apart in their heart as holy. Notice what it says in 1 Peter 3.15, it says, in your hearts, talking to believers, regard Christ the Lord as holy. So as a New Testament follower of Christ, and sometimes I think we should have like long legal contracts that explain what it means to follow Christ. Because I think some people are duped. You know what I mean? And don't you want to be happy and everything be wonderful? Won't you come to Jesus? You're like, happy, wonderful? Yeah, I'm sure that's not great. And then a little later on, we explain, uh, you know, it's not always happy and wonderful. You know, there's sometimes, and so on. And we sort of give the nitty gritty of what it means to walk in the Lord and stuff like that. Sometimes I think we need to have a nice legal document that spells all that out. But here's one of the things that it means to follow Christ. To follow Christ means that you are a person that is set apart unto holiness. That means that you are part of the good dishes that are only brought out of the good times, so to speak. And what that simply means is, is that, Lord, I am yours. So I no longer go my own direction, do my own thing, and, and kind of think and say and go and be what I want to be. But, Father, I bring it all into your submission. And I say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so on and so forth. We are people that are set apart unto holiness, unto the glory of the Lord. Secondly, we know the Old Testament priests, they offered up intercessory prayers on behalf of others. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy, he said, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For this is good and pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. How often are you interceding in prayer for other people? You know, the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, it teaches us as followers of Christ about our access into the throne room of God. And sometimes I think we make the mistake of thinking that anybody could go before God in prayer. Well, Scripture doesn't teach that. Scripture doesn't teach that everybody has access to, to God in heaven in prayer. But it teaches that access to God in heaven was granted through the work of Christ. And the Scripture teaches that Christ sits at the right hand of Christ who is our high priest, sits at the right hand of the Father, so that when we come in, essentially Christ is saying, that one's okay, that one's okay, that one's okay. They have a relationship with me, they've been covered. And so it tells us in the book of Hebrews that we can boldly enter into the throne room of grace. Now you think of boldly, and you think that means like somebody coming in talking trash or whatever. Yeah, I'm in here, and this is what I want to tell you. Sit down, guys. That's not what boldly means. That's what it means in our English culture. But boldly simply means to come in with confidence. Have you ever been somewhere where you really weren't supposed to be there, but if the people were nice, they would let you in? You know, a party or something like that. I remember going to parties in high school, and I knew they really didn't want me there, but maybe they'll be in a good mood, they'll let me come into their party or something like that. Or you go to an office somewhere, and there's one of those walls or whatever that keeps the riffraff out from the people that work. And so you have to get, you, you don't just kind of open the door and go back into that section. You've got to get permission to come back into there. Well, if I work there, then I go to the door, I slide in, and I, I sit down at my desk. I enter with confidence. I don't ask anyone, can I please come into my office and sit at my desk, would that be okay? I can come into that particular room with confidence. That's the word that is used to describe our relationship in prayer with God, that we can confidently enter into God's presence, and we can lift up our prayers before him. If that means that some can come in and some can't, what that means is you have a high responsibility. That if you are a priest of God, a New Testament priest, a follower of Christ, that you can do certain things that other people can't do. And that is go before God and cry out for his mercy and his grace in their lives. And so I would ask you, and I would, I would guess most of us are probably weak in this particular area as New Testament priests. We're pretty good, you know, with serving others. We're pretty good with keeping Christ set apart in our life. But our prayer life is probably weak, particularly our prayer life for other people. And so I would encourage you, become a person that is praying, and, be, and specifically be a person that goes before God and cries out 
for those that can't go before him themselves. And then number three, it talks about minister unto him, even as you minister unto others. Remember that part there, minister unto him? That our labor is not just unto others, but that it is unto the Lord. I like what Ephesians 6 says. It says, as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as unto the Lord, and not to man. And as I touched on before, I think that changes everything in our service. When our focus is the Lord and not those that will let us down, then we find the strength, and it comes from within. Number four, it's, remember we learned there about you be, uh, you've been blessed to be a blessing. I think of the book of Ephesians. I don't have a, a verse up here for you, but I think of the book of Ephesians, which talks about how we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the high places. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians speak of all the ways in which God has blessed you as a follower of Christ. And then, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, So walk ye therein. This is the way you ought to live your life. You've been blessed to be a blessing. And so we are to always keep in the forefront of our heart and our mind that we're fountains. We're not cisterns that just store up God's blessing, but we're fountains looking for ways that God can flow through us. Now I used to say to my students when I was teaching and when I was coaching soccer, if uh, the soccer team would go from our school to go play at another school, one of the things I would always say to them is, leave this place cleaner than when we got here. I don't want anyone saying anything about Ewing High School. I don't want anyone saying anything about me as a coach or the soccer team or whatever, that we're a bunch of slobs. We're going to leave the place cleaner than when we got here. When I was teaching and we would go to the computer lab or something like that, I'd gather all the students there, and I would say, hey, pick up those papers, those papers there, this place a mess. And they'd say, that's not my paper. I didn't put it there. And we got janitors for that, that sort of thing. I said, no, we're going to leave this place cleaner than when we came. And the kids didn't like that, and they didn't get it. Whatever. That's the way it is. You fail, you know, you know, something like that. And so, leave the place better than when you found it. And I think that that's what God will have, would have for each of us in our daily lives. That we are people that leave a place better than when it was before we got there. And so, let me just give you an example. You know, here we are, we're in this rented facility. I doubt we'll be here for the rest of our lives. Um, whatever, and maybe someday God will raise up a building for us. And let's just say that that building happens to be in a neighboring town. It's not here in Ewing, but maybe it's in Lawrence, maybe it's in Trenton, maybe it's in Hopewell, maybe it's across the river. That would be weird. That would be Mercer County and Bucks County. <laughs> let's say it's somewhere else. What I would hope is that when the township officials, the mayor, and, and all those sorts of people heard about it, I would hope they would run to us and say, you can't leave Ewing. We need you guys here in Ewing. You guys are such a great blessing to our community. That's what I hope that they would say. You want to leave a place better uh, than you found it, so to speak. You've been blessed to be a blessing. Well, we read in verses 21 to 23 about Merari. Now we come to verse 24. And it's the final chapter, uh, final section of this chapter. And it goes on to explain what the Gershonites, the Kohathites, and the Merarites, what are they going to do? You know, for the last 400 years or so, their job and their group was, you know, the, it's time, the bell rings and it's time to move the tabernacle, and they just went to work and they began to do it. And people are breaking things down and folding things up and getting ready to march from one place to the other. But now, they're going to have a permanent tabernacle, or excuse me, a permanent temple. Now, the only difference between a tabernacle and a temple is one was made of goat skins and the other was made of rock and covered with gold. And so they're the exact same place here, but these guys are not going to have a job anymore. You know, so what are we going to do from here? We'll look at verse 24. It'll read this way. It says, Now these were the sons of Levi, Levi by their father's houses. The heads of father's houses as they were listed according to the number of the names of the individuals from 20 years old and up who were to do the work of the service of the house of the Lord. For David said, The Lord, the God of Israel, has given rest to his people, and he dwells in Jerusalem forever. That's the temple. And so the Levites no longer need to carry the tabernacle or any of the things of its service. And so on and so on. And it goes on. From there. Now, one thing notice is in the book of Numbers, it declared that a priest began his work at the age of 30, between the age of 30 and 50. David here, I think it's around verse 25 or 26, he has lowered the age to 20. That's something interesting. The first thing you might say is, is he allowed to do that? I don't know. He doesn't. Nobody says anything about it, so apparently he is allowed here. But I think more significantly is why. Why does he move it from 30 to 20 and put these people to work at a certain age? Well, I think my first thought would be, well, what are these guys going to do? They had to break down the tabernacle all the time and move it. Well, 
What are they going to do now? The buildings are already put up there. Actually, what we're going to see is that there is a significantly increased workload now that there is a permanent structure. So there's going to be more work that needs to be done, and thus more uh, people are needed to do these particular jobs. So David is anticipating this, that there's going to be more work with this temple, and thus uh, a greater number of men is needed. Also, I think it's an interesting thing when you consider it's a new task that has to be done. If you want to call it this, you can call it it's a new ministry that has to be done. And one of the things that I have found in, in the faith, the Christian faith or whatever, is sometimes circumstances come along that are such that are going to call us to move on to something new. And when something comes along that is new, as logical as that may seem, you're like, all right, we've got to do the new things. But many times God's people are reluctant to move on to do that new thing. And we don't, I don't know why they're reluctant here. I think some of the reasons why, you know what, we've always done it this way, so we'll just keep doing it this particular way. I don't want to change. That's comfortable. We like to be comfortable. And so God's doing something new, but I'm comfortable doing it the way that we've always done it before, so I'm reluctant to change. For other people, it might be out of a sense of loyalty. So God is sort of moving on, and he's moving to a new thing, and he's doing something, but there's sort of this sense of, well, I have to be loyal this is the church I've grown up in all my life, or this is the ministry that I've been involved with, or we've only done this, or so on. And so they're afraid to move on out of a sense of loyalty. I think for other people, it's a sense of tradition. I am a tradition guy. I like to keep stats. I like to compare this year with 25 years ago, all this sort of stuff. So I, I find myself to kind of get trapped in that. And what that means is, as far as ministry is concerned, it means, hey, if we've done this before, then we got to keep doing it. We've done Light the Night for, I don't know, 10 years now. We've got to do a Light the Night. Light the Night's what we do for Halloween, uh, kind of our alternative. We've got to do it in the following year. You have to, right? Because we've always done it. And we can't have that one empty year where there's like no World Series, as they had a few years back. You can't. That doesn't make sense. So you've got to have a Light the Night. We've done a family mission trip for seven years. We've got to do it again. And I wrestled with this. And fortunately, the elders and others, they remind me, well, we should pray about this. So just because Light the Night was great for the last decade doesn't, sorry Art, doesn't necessarily mean that God wants to do it next year. And so we seek the Lord. Just because the family mission trip went great for seven years doesn't mean God wants us to do another one, necessarily. And so we seek the Lord. We continually pray. But here's the thing. When God is through with a particular thing, sometimes we try to keep it on life support. Keep it going. We just got to keep it going. When God is saying, no, no, let it die. You see, it's this idea that there's no good purpose to try and preserve something that God intends for it to go away. And so that's why we need to be a people that seeks his will. Just because we've always done it this way or it makes us feel comfortable, it does not necessarily mean we need to keep doing it. When God has moved on, we should move on. And so we keep in step with what God is doing so that we are part of something that is alive and that is moving. You know, one of the interesting things is as people are, are coming uh, here to Calvary. What, and remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, on, on August 12th when uh, Pastor Scott, uh, we prayed for him as we sent him out to Calvary Chapel Living Hope. On that particular day, one of the things that I said is, you know, I love when people, you know, they come from one church and they, they come here or whatever, that's great, it's fun to have them as part of our work. But do you remember I said, but where I really feel I want the Lord to work in such a way is for the unbeliever, the person that doesn't ever go to church and they find a place here at Calvary. Remember I said that? Anybody? Nobody? Good. Thanks for praying for that. <laughs> you know, but that was where I really, I said, you know, it's great. People come from this one, and if, if this is a place where they're getting fed and equipped to do the work of ministry, great. But what I really want to do is see the unbeliever, the lost, come to the place where they understand who Christ is, what he did for them, and how simple access to Christ is, uh, to God is through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what I really want to see in people's lives completely changed and transformed as they become a new creation. But what's been exciting is that's what God is doing. And so people that never go to church have started coming here to Calvary. Week after week, more and more people are coming, and they're sitting and they're learning. And the things that they're saying is the people are really nice. And that's good. That's funny to you guys. But they're also saying, I get it. I, I, under, I never understood the Bible before, but I'm starting to get it, and I'm starting to understand. That's because the Spirit of God is moving through the Word of God. Because there's a life that is here. But sadly, here's one thing that starts to happen is, as we no longer are listening to the Spirit and seeing what he's doing and how he is moving, the place starts to get stale and the place starts to get dry. And so people come in, they come and they sit, and they sense that 
staleality. That's a word. That's staleness. I don't know what the word, uh, the proper form is. But they sense that staleness, that dryness, and they walk away and they say something, and this is devastating. They'll say something like, well, I tried God, but I just didn't get anything out of it. And you want to go back to them and you want to say, no, man, we were in a bad place at that time. You were, you were just trying, you were experiencing sort of the leftovers of God's glory, the fading, passing part of his glory. But man, when we are tapped into the spirit, you'll know it. And that's what I think is exciting. And so I want to encourage you, sort of, when God is doing a new thing, make sure you're doing that thing with him. And that, it's required that you're tapped in. So we go back to what we said earlier here. Abide in Christ. As, uh, as we are the branches, the branches need to abide in the vine. So too do you and I. Pursue your personal relationship with Christ. The greatest thing that we could do as a church to impact this community in which we live in and to see people come to saving faith in the work of Jesus Christ, the greatest thing that each of us could be doing is pursuing our own relationship with Christ. And as each one of us is on fire, as each one of us is tapped in, as each one of us is experiencing that life source, God works powerfully through a people like that. So that's my message for you. I hope that it's an encouragement and a reminder to sort of pursue your personal relationship with Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can even have a personal relationship with you. But that we do not have to go between some go-between. We don't have to go to another man or a woman or anything like that and say, uh, could you please tell God this or that? But Lord, that we have the ability to come right into the throne room of God, that you have granted us access. Lord, that that which has separate, separated us from you, our sin has been dealt with. Lord, that you said on a cross 2,000 years ago, paid in full. The debt has been paid, and access has been granted. And so, Father, as followers of Christ, as New Testament believers, but we certainly want to be a people that fulfill the task that you have for us and the ministry that you have, Lord, ministry of priests. But we want to be a people that is going before God for others as intercessory uh, prayer warriors. Father, we want to be a people that are a blessing, not just that we receive a blessing, but that we are a blessing to other people. Father, we want to continually be people that minister unto you, that you might be pleased, and that as you say in your word, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Father, we want to fulfill all of the ministry that you have for us, and we want to be used by you in this world in which we live. And so we pray that you would fill us with a greater sense of pursuing you, but give us a greater hunger of knowing you. Father, I ask even just this week, even tomorrow, Lord, as we sit down and we have that time with you in that secret place, Lord, that you would pour out a special blessing tomorrow morning on each of us. And Father, that we will know that we think the presence of God. And Lord, that that would really just uh, sort of in, imbibe us for the rest of that day. Father, we love you. We're so grateful for the relationship that we can have with you. 